Welcome to the Victorian Parent Council VPC Parent Podcast Series. VPC is a registered charity organisation dedicated to everyone who support parents in educating their children. I'm Jackie Vanderveld, your host today. Welcome everybody to uh, the VPC Live uh, for tonight. Uh, and uh, my name is Jackie Vanderveld, and it is my great pleasure to be hosting again the fabulous Deanna Dow. Hi, Deanna, how are you? Fantastic, thank you. How are you today? Very, very well, thank you. Um, Deanna is going to be continuing her series with us uh, on study techniques and study hints and tips. And tonight's session is about optimising the study environment. So uh, it's always practical, always useful, and uh, and just really down to worth sensible advice. So um, Deanna, welcome. I'm going to hand over to you. Before I do, folks, if you've got questions, please pop them in the Q&A and I will triage from there and we'll ask those at the end of the session. So over to you, Deanna. Thank you so much, Jackie. Hi, everyone. As Jackie mentioned, my name is Deanna and I am a study academic and productivity coach and, and the founder of True Coaching. And for the last 10 years, I have been helping predominantly high school and university students with uh, their study and their study skills. Um, and when you've been around them for that long, you start to figure out some of the some of the general patterns and trends. And um, if I had to say one of the top things that students typically uh, struggle with or one thing that makes the biggest difference in a student's in, um, study experience is actually the environment and what they're studying. And so that's why today I thought we'd talk a little bit about um, optimising the study environment and what that looks like for the students, what they have on their desk, when they're studying, how they're studying, um, just to help push that along a little bit. And obviously every student has a unique set of circumstances and, and a unique environment, but we're going to try and give some general tips that will apply across the board. And typically by the end of this, some students um, and parents and teachers and whoever's listening will have some tips. Uh, I wouldn't discount these strategies as an adult as well. Um, having a clear work environment is always a good thing. So we'll jump straight into it. But I guess if you are parents relaying this information to your student, or if you're a, a teacher encouraging your students to consider their study environment, you have to you have to get their buy-in. You have to help them understand why, in the first place, um, that a study environment is so important. So, a question that you can start by asking them is, um, "How do you feel while studying? Are you feeling focused and motivated, like you want to?" typically ideal for a study environment? Or are you leaning more towards bored or tired or lethargic? Um, this is quite common in year nine and 10. Um, when you're hitting those, those teenage years, it can be uh, very normal for students to feel lethargic and bored and tired at their study desk. On the other side of the spectrum, we've got anxious and stressed for students who are quite worried about all the workload they have or quite overwhelmed by studying in school. Or we've got hungry and fidgety, which again are very common in the um, in the teenage repertoire of emotions and feelings. When you studied, all of a sudden you have to eat, all of a sudden you have to touch everything on your desk. So getting a student to think, how do you actually feel while you study? And then ask them if that's how they want to feel or should feel while they're studying. 
And typically those two don't align and you um, can get their buy-in on, on considering maybe changing it up a little bit. But one of the most crucial points from a study perspective, not from a keeping it neat for mum and dad or for a feeling a little bit better while studying, for my study and I guess results perspective, do you feel confident at home and then stressed on test day? Can you get all the results that you need at home, but then on test day, you either feel um, like you're having mental blanks, like you're a little bit anxious, like you don't know what you're looking at, even though you've been studying it at home. This is another really good question to ask um, to get students to perhaps consider how are their study habits at home affecting their results on test day. Because in my experience, one of the first steps we take with most students is to actually audit their study space. And it typically either looks a little something like this, um, crowded with all sorts of things. Uh, you'll notice probably the phone directly in front of the student, scarves and anything that you can fidget with all around. Or perhaps like this, sticky notes everywhere with the intention of being organised, but maybe causing more chaos than anything else. Uh, maybe they are very in tune with wanting it to look very pretty and beautiful, but that can cause a bit of, of clutter and overwhelm. Or maybe it's every 15-year-old boy's desk ever, and it looks a little bit like this. You got snacks and noodles and toys and all sorts of things. Or even if it is particularly organised, there might be um, a bit of clutter, a few little bits and pieces all around the desk, which look, none of these are disastrous. It might be, look something like this as well. So whatever the desk looks like, one thing we'll probably notice is that, you know, it's, it's very cosy. It's very customised to the student experience. It's got a lot of the things that make them feel comfortable and make them feel happy and make them feel like it's their own. And then on test day, they're sitting in front of this. Right. So on test day, all of their creature comforts are gone. All of their, their customization and all of their pretty colors or their gaming um, toys or anything else that they, they typically see around them or feel around them while they're studying is gone. And they're placed in what can be considered a rather clinical environment. So you've got a desk, a paper and a pen. So from a learning perspective, the place in which you are learning all of this information and you are absorbing all the information looks like this or this or this. And then the place that you have to retrieve the information looks like this. Now, the fundamental flaw in all of this is that learning is sensory. So learning is predominantly sensory which means it isn't just a purely cognitive function. It is not just something that our brain does alone. It's something that our sense of sight and smell and touch and what we can hear and what we can taste, all of these work together to create our learning environment. And if we are trying to input the information in one environment, but export it in another, this is where it can become particularly tricky for students. Even adults in the workforce, if you have a forced to do training modules at home, 
And then you're forced to actually present or, or get the, the same result or the output in the workspace in which you haven't practiced with those resources in that climate surrounded by those people in that sensory space, it can be tricky. So what we want to support the students in doing is actually trying to get their senses involved in the learning experience and try to match it up as much as possible. And that's really going to be a big theme of today. Like how can we mimic or match as closely as possible the study environment that students are learning information in to the environment that they have to actually present or recall that information in. And by doing that, we're bridging a gap for them that is biological. Um, the example I often give is if you are walking down the street and you smell fresh bread, you know that there is a bakery coming up and no one's ever sat you down and necessarily taught you that. No one sat you down and said, hey, if you are ever walking down a street and you get a waft of fresh bread, there is a bakery coming up. <laughs> but what you know is that the last time you were in an environment where you were in a shop and you smelt fresh bread, it was a bakery. So the next time you were in that same environment, your brain is able to naturally recall that information. So how can we help students leverage their natural ability to learn and their natural ability to associate by mimicking the exam environment that they have to recall the information as much as possible in their home environment. And that starts with probably a really obvious one that parents might actually be a little happy with, I suspect. And it starts with what we call a study space and desk audit. So as adults, we know an audit is to kind of review, look for errors, discrepancies, anything that should potentially be changed. Um, we call, I call it an audit because we've structured it as a bit of a checklist um, to see any discrepancies between what we want our study space to look like and what it actually looks like. So this is an activity that you can do with your students. Um, all it takes is one piece of paper or two pieces of paper where they can write a list, but it's important that it's a tactile activity. It's important that they're sitting in their study space and doing this. And I would actually recommend for anyone, parents, teachers, or students that are watching this now, either live or on demand, to actually take your laptop or your phone or your computer to your desk and try to follow along with this activity while we go through it. And you may be surprised at the results. So we're gonna start with a study space and desk audit. Now carrying on with the sensory theme, what we can see or our sense of sight is our strongest sense. It's a sense that is most strongly associated with what we're learning. So when we are thinking about um, auditing our desk from a visual perspective, the question is simply, what can I see while I study? It's probably not something you've ever stopped and thought about, but what can you see while you study or you work? Now, the most obvious answers are, you know, my pencil case, my, my notebook, my phone, right? But you need to push yourself and extend that a little bit. You might also be able to see the fridge or the TV. So what can you see in your 
in the background? What can you see behind what you're studying? If you're studying in the lounge or the kitchen, can you see the fridge or the TV or the dining room table or where your dogs play? Can you, do you have pictures from your holidays or a textbook or random piles of paper, which I, I'm still not sure how these random piles of paper accumulate, but they are often present on students' desks or a calculator. We do, we don't have time to go through it today, but this can also be something that you do in the digital landscape. When you open your desktop, what do you see? Do you see a thousand files? Do you see in the same place pictures from your last holiday as well as the most important financial reports for this year? It is something you can use in any context where you just objectively scan your environment and write down everything you can see. Right? Completely objectively, there is nothing that is right or wrong. Just writing down everything you can see. So right now I can see the cup that I was drinking from. I'm sitting in front of a window, I can see outside, everything that I could objectively see on my desk. This often gets students to, I guess, check themselves for a moment because they often have a phone or an iPad or their Xbox controller or whatever else it might be on their desk. Um, so it's a really good opportunity for them to, they can't back away from, a, from an objective list of, um, of nouns more than anything else. So, that's the first step, our sense of sight. But it isn't just what we can see. To take it one level further, it's what's within arm's reach. So this is now exploring our sense of touch. Now, some of these will be repeated. They will both be something we can see and touch. Well, everything on your arm's reach list should be on your um, something you can see but also even something that is really easy that you can just swivel your chair around and have access to. So the next thing to consider is what is within arm's reach. If I was sitting down to do a study session or to work right now, what could I physically reach out that might be distracting to me? So again, you've got your standing sort of standard sort of pencil case, notebook, phone, gaming controller, maybe snacks. You might also have a drink bottle, textbook, pile of paper, calculator, all sorts of things that you can just reach out and physically touch right now while you're studying. The initial step of this audit is to actually have all the information present. And when I get to this point, I typically ask students, everything on that list, is that more than you thought, less than you thought, or about what you thought you had in front of you? And most of them will say, there's a lot more than I thought. Um, or sometimes they'll say less, but in the wrong way, like they'll realize they don't actually have their calculator on their desk when they're doing their math homework, or they'll realize they don't have their textbook or their digital textbook or whatever it might be. So they might actually be missing resources they need to study. So this is a really good activity to just on the most basic level before you even start studying is there anything you really shouldn't have on your desk that you don't need? And is there anything you really should have on your desk that you do need? Right. Um, so obviously phase one is figuring that out or figuring out what is in front of you, what you can see and what you can touch, which covers our first two senses. But then how do we decide what to do next and where do we go from here? Now we have a general principle that makes this process a little bit easier. It is a 
kind of all in approach, sort of take everything off and, and figure it out approach. But how far students take it has to be up to them in terms of, of how um, how much they can they can sort of manage to move towards this exam condition space. But the general question that we'll ask is, if you can't take it into a test, take it off your desk, right? So this is a really general statement, which obviously overgeneralizes because all you can take into a desk is a pen and a paper, but it's a really good place to start for clearing the study space. So if you can't take it into a test, take it off your desk, right? But you pose it a question, can you take that into a test? No, then take it off your desk. So obviously things like phones and um, gadgets and toys and widgets, are, they're immediately eliminated from it. But if you actually take a pen and go through this list, you'll be surprised how much of your study space you can clear out just by using this really basic principle. If you can't take it into a test, take it off your desk, but pose it as a question for your students. So now the activity becomes simple. If you take your list and you get a red pen or a blue pen or whatever you wanna use, we're basically gonna go through and either tick or cross everything that we've got on our list. If you've been playing along at home, I'll spend a little time just on this slide to make sure you've got your list ready before we sort of move on. Um, but the reason this, let me take 10 steps back. This is something that is not all one and done type of activity because we've all, I'm sure, cleaned our study space or workspace at some point, only for it to become really full and quite cluttered not long after that, whether it's a couple of weeks or a couple of months or by the end of the year, you look around and you don't recognize it anymore. So this is actually something for students, I usually do it after, after the end of a term or the end of exams as a bit of a reset or at the start of exam period as well to prepare them for that. But semi-regularly, three or four times a year for some of the more, for, for your average student, but for some of the students that are used to a more cluttered environment, um, it could be something that's done you know, monthly or weekly, or in some cases for my students, even daily. So sometimes daily, we have a checklist. Um, by that time, by the time we've done it a few times, you know what you should have on the desk. So they have a list of what's on your desk. Can you take it into a test? And it just says pen, paper, laptop, notebook. So before they start studying, they clear anything else that might be on their desk before they sit down. So that's how this is applied practically. For your average student, once a term is a pretty good kind of clean out. For students that need it a bit more, monthly or weekly is good. And for students who really sort of struggle with this or really need a reset daily to get into the space, um, daily is good. Daily also allows for habit stacking because if you get into the habit of cleaning your desk, well, the desk is clean now, I might as well sit down and study. So there's a whole lot of um, benefit to that as well. But now that we've got this, if you've been playing along at home, you can also use your list. Essentially, you go through and say, what would I be able to see or use in a test? Now, a little bit of common sense here, obviously your calculator or your textbook, you can't use in every test, but for studying, it's important. Um, but generally speaking, 
you're not allowed it in a test, you don't want it around your desk. So what can I see while I study? You can see the pencil case and notebook are good, but your phone and the fridge are not good. Now, obviously students can't just get up and move the fridge, but is there an opportunity to potentially change the orientation of where they're studying? Right. So typically if students can see a fridge, it's because they're studying on the business, uh, on the kitchen bench or the dining room table. Can they potentially just change their orientation so that they can't see the fridge? Purely because all of us know as humans that if we see the fridge, at some point we're going to be thinking about food. And food is not what we want to be thinking about while we're trying to study. So when you come across these things, it actually becomes a bit of a problem solving activity. While some of them are as simple as taking them off your desk, others like fridge or TV or, or pictures of your holiday or whatever it might be, might actually involve relocation if possible, but maybe just reorientating um, where you're actually sitting, move to the other side of the dining room table or move to the opposite end of the kitchen bench so that you're not seeing the fridge. The point being that we want to limit the amount of visual distractions. Now, in an ideal world, the student is going to have a desk in a space where when they look forward, they're either seeing nothing like a wall or a window or a clean space without distractions. But we all know that there's not always such thing as an ideal world with multiple kids in the house, with multiple family members, with pets and, and with limitations of space. Sometimes a student does have to study on the dining room table or does have to study on the kitchen bench. So if that is the case, at least limiting or reducing their visual distractions through changing the orientation is a good place to start. But if possible, the students should have a designated space in the house, either a study or if it has to be a corner in their room, that's also a possibility. But we'll talk a little bit later about bedroom study as well. So you go through your audit of what you can see while you study and think, what should I be able to see? Or what am I seeing that's contributing positively to my studies? And can I remove anything else? And then we do the same with what's within arm's reach. Naturally, you can keep drink bottles, textbooks, calculators, notebooks, and pencil cases, but your phone, your gaming controller, your snacks, and your random pile of paper is probably something we can clear. So while it's not always possible to get a perfect, perfect um, exam environment, if you're moving towards something that looks a little bit more like this, then we're on the right track. Because sitting at this desk, yes, there is a mug there because either a mug or a drink bottle is typically okay. But if the laptop has school-related information, the notebook is school-related, the pens are school-related, even looking at the pencils in the jar is typically associated with study or work, then everything that your eye catches is going to be either encouraging you or promoting study as opposed to looking around and yes, seeing things that you love, but that toy probably sends your brain on the path of where you got it and why you have it and why you love it so much or what you'd rather be doing than studying or working. Because our brain, just like the bakery example, 
we can't control the sensory connections that it makes. So when it sees something that we love, it's thinking about all the reasons we love it and all the people that are associated with why we love it and all the experiences that we had that showed us we love it. And it's all a little bit distracting from that study environment. So that activity is a surefire way to, I guess, objectively audit your environment, your own work environment, your students' environment. It's something you can do regularly. It's something that works all the time. And it's something that you can do to varying degrees. We know that it's not always viable or possible for a student to have a completely empty, free desk by space restrictions. Maybe they're sharing the desk with someone else. Maybe it has to be the kitchen bench. But if you can go through this process and maximize it as much as possible, you're giving your student the best um, chance from a biological perspective to focus in that study space. So that's a bulk of, of the, the kind of two main senses, which are what you can see and what you can touch. But we can't discount the fact that digital distractions are um, a huge problem at the moment because you will be studying, but then you'll see your bookmark for Netflix or YouTube or Facebook or Instagram or whatever it is that, that the student gets distracted by. And sometimes willpower isn't enough. Naturally, the first step would be to also do a digital audit. What bookmarks can I see? What can I easily access with one touch? Do I need to maybe remove an app from my desktop? Do I need to perhaps remove a shortcut? So there are ways that you can complete that very same audit in the digital landscape. But sometimes for students, willpower is not enough when it comes to easily accessible web pages, like just going to another tab and writing in Netflix or Disney Plus or, or Reddit. So there are some options for apps that you can use. Now, the difficult thing is a lot of schools have restrictions on what um, apps or extensions can be downloaded on the student's computers. So it's not always a viable option. Um, but I can tell you as an adult that I use, I do use a self-control app for Mac. And basically it allows you to say that I do not want to be able to access um, these five websites for the next half an hour or for the next hour while I work on these tasks. And then when you try to open those websites, whether it's via shortcut or um, the URL bar, you'll actually get an error message that says basically not now or 40 minutes ago or what each one has a custom error message. So these are good apps um, that students can use. It works more effectively if they have a private device, but some schools can allow you to get through it if you just ask. Essentially, it allows them to block websites while they're studying. So the students might say, please block this list of websites for the next half an hour so I can get through my homework. So that's yeah, removing something that they can physically touch, I guess, in the digital space. They can digitally touch out of, um, out of sight, out of mind there as well. So sight, what you can see and what you can touch are your two biggest senses when it comes to study and when it comes to working, but they're not the only senses involved. There is also music. So we look at, can I listen to music while I study? Um, now this topic actually comes up in multiple workshops um, that we've done and in this series, because it's something that 
It is probably the single most popular question that I'm asked by students and parents. Whenever I am um, doing an initial conversation, it's always an argument where the student says, Sit. can I listen to music while I study? Tell her I can listen to music while I study. And the parent's like, no, you shouldn't listen to music while you study. So it, it's a huge debate in households and it's a huge comfort um, for students to listen to music. So it is part of that sensory study environment. So there is no... The scientists are out. There is no specific outcome that says, yes, you should or no, you shouldn't. But there is one thing that they can all agree on. It's up to you if you want to listen to music, but it should not have lyrics. Now, the reason for that is that our brain is not physically able to process two conversations at once. So if you are trying to study and learn but you can hear the lyrics to the song in a back in the background your brain might actually confuse what you're trying to read with what you're hearing and you end up not being able to process either very well and it's unsure of what to store effectively so the music itself is less the issue but more the lyrics in the music but then the next question I get is if I if I can't have lyrics what should I listen to? Now, this is where we can also leverage our biology. We can leverage how we are actually built as humans, as organisms, and how our physiology um, works for us while we're learning. So when deciding what type of music you should listen to, you actually need to listen to your body and your mind a little bit and think about how you feel while studying or working. So encourage the students to, to actually analyze how, how are you feeling right now and how do you feel while you study? Because the type of music you listen to actually sort of affects your mood, your physiology and your ability to focus. Now, when we talk about studying and how you're feeling, it might be neutral, but there is also two probably ends of the spectrum and the students might find themselves anywhere in between. So they might feel more high energy. Now, high energy doesn't always mean good energy. It could be stressed or anxious or nervous or fidgety. So that highly strung is more what we're thinking about. So do they feel high energy in that their body is in overdrive? They're stressing out about something. This usually comes with like, speaking really fast, maybe struggling to catch their breath while they explain to you that they're stressed for a test, um, sitting there shaking their leg and not really being sure where to start. That's a high energy state when they're trying to study. They're especially nervous or fidgety. But sometimes students go the other way. They go into low energy states. So they're unmotivated, lazy, tired and lethargic. So slouched at their study desk, they've got their pen barely in their hand and they might get four lines down in a two hour period. <laughs> so how they feel while they study can be anywhere on this spectrum. Um, and it's quite a broad, broad spectrum at that. But what does this have to do with the music that they listen to? I want you to imagine the last time that you were in any environment where music was the main sensory experience. You were at a concert or a party 
or even in a shopping center where they have the music quite loud. At some point in that experience, you might have noticed that your, your leg starts tapping or your head starts bopping or you start swaying in sync with the music. Perhaps you even start singing involuntarily. Perhaps you even start walking faster because you're in a store that's paying quite upbeat, fast music. Or maybe you calm down a little bit when you walk into a store that's playing calm music. Music affects our physiology because music is physical sound waves. There are music and sound is a physical thing. And the more high intensity it is, the more energy the body's getting and the more likely it is to move and synchronize with what you're experiencing. And the slower it is or the slower pace it is, I guess, the more likely your body is to synchronize and and slow down in that way or in that space. So I guess it's um, it's worth considering the effect that music has on us before we decide what type of music we want to listen to while studying. So if we come back to our spectrum of feelings while studying for students, if they are in a high energy state, naturally what we want to do is actually work to bring down their energy. We actually want to work to kind of um, help them subdue those those anxious or or nervous feelings. So what we can do in that case is actually listen to music that is um, a little bit slower, a little bit more mellow, so classical or reggae or lo-fi hip-hop. Most students know that classical is good study music, but the problem with the narrative out there is they say you should always listen to classical while you study. But if I'm not feeling um, in the right space or if I don't enjoy classical or if it it maybe it genuinely bothers me then I need to have other options out there available so making things like reggae lo-fi hip-hop available typically students can find something there's also jazz um, there's also all sorts of different type of uh, white noise and background sounds that can help students focus by bringing their energy levels down just like there is also Music that can help bring students' energy up. So I'm personally a video game music um, advocate myself. I um, love listening to video game music while I work because sometimes when I sit down, I feel a little bit unmotivated. Um, I have a lot of tasks at hand and I can't really focus up. So by putting on video game music, it is upbeat. It brings my energy levels up. And there has also been billions of dollars of research that goes into designing these soundtracks to specifically keep you motivated, focused, and dedicated to getting to the next level. And if I had to think about three things that I want students to feel while they're studying, those would be on the list. Dedicated, focused, and wanting to get to the next level. Now, I'm personally a... um, Nintendo 64, Mario Kart, and um, Donkey Kong, Zelda, Backtrack Girl myself, but there is a broad range of of opportunities out there. And with a wonderful thing called YouTube, you can actually find playlists that go for an hour or two hours or three hours of all of these genres, classical, reggae, lo-fi, hip-hop, house, techno, video game music, 
background noise, study tracks, all sorts of things. So the moral of the story with music is to choose the music that's right for you so that you can counter the energy that you're feeling. So it's worth maybe not telling the students to don't listen to music at all and, and pull it out, but ask them what music they're listening to and get them to think whether it's the right one for them. So music does play a huge role. Our sense of hearing does contribute to our sensory environment. Now, if you want our opinion as True Coaching and myself, no music is always the best solution purely because we are looking to move towards a exam environment as much as possible. If we are purely looking at mimicking the exam environment, then no music is the best option because it means that you can um, get used to not having that sensory distraction around you or that sensory aid because on exam day, you're not going to have it. But it is a transition for students and you have to give them the opportunity to transition out their own way, go from listening to their pop and their modern playlists and their TikTok playlists and whatever it is that they're listening to now, give them a middle step. Listen to all those same things, but without lyrics. Then maybe let's curate a playlist that actually works best for you. And then when we get to exam study, let's attempt to remove that altogether and give them an opportunity to transition out of their current habits. But Music can be leveraged and your sense of hearing can be leveraged during study. So sense of sight, sense of touch, sense of hearing. There is something else we need to touch on that is not necessarily an obvious sense as much as it is still a physio physiological experience while studying. And that is even after you've cleared everything and you've put the music on and you've given them some upbeat tracks, some students still feel tired while studying. If anything, this probably links back to what we can see, but one of the major reasons that students still feel tired is typically because of the light setting around them. Now, this is probably the hardest one that I can actually convince students is important because they think, well, I can see it just fine, so it's okay. But it's less about what you can see and whether you can see the words on the page and more about how your body is reacting to the light levels. For example, when you're in a cinema, you can see the screen very clearly. You can read the screen clearly. You're getting a lot of stimulus, but you're in a dark room. Now, what do, typically, but what do people typically feel at the end of a movie? Over 73% of people that enter a cinema feel lethargic or tired at the end of the movie, regardless of whether it was an upbeat, exciting movie and, and it was the best thing they've ever seen, when they leave the cinema, they feel tired or they feel drained or they sometimes even feel sleepy in the cinemas. This is because of the extremely low light levels. Right? The low light levels means that your body is not able to absorb it's much light as it would like, um, and it starts to break down its melatonin, which puts you in a sleep state. I'm not going to go into the science of it too much, but basically low light equals sleepiness. But in the same way that low light equals sleepiness, bright light 
equals very alertness. <laughs> so when you are trying to go to sleep and the phone is in your face and a very bright light is being pulled into your eyes and your retina at a really close proximity, sometimes it can be hard to sleep in this state because of all the light stimulus. So you can be really tired, but as soon as you get in bed on your phone, all of a sudden you're not tired and you might, it might take you another hour to fall asleep. So what does this tell us about lighting? Potentially higher amount of light means, I guess, less breakdown of melatonin, which means more energy and more focus. If you don't believe me just yet, why do you think doctors have multiple sets of bright white lights? Yes, it's so they can see the patient and the body, but they probably don't need sets on the roof, sets on their head, sets on the tool on top of them and sets on the sides of the room. But the high level of bright white light can help keep them alert for the 30, 36 or 48 hour surgeries that they have because they are aware that if it gets dim at all, their melatonin builds up, they will get tired. So when a student says, I still feel tired while I'm studying, you've got to wonder whether they're studying in rooms like this, which feels typical and looks okay. But if you look at the lighting, yes, there is some light coming through from their window next to them, but there's not a lot of light coming through into their face or into their eyes because their desk is in a dark corner of the room. Interestingly, this student has a lamp on their desk, but it's not switched on. But even that wouldn't be enough. A lamp in a dark room does not solve the problem. What we want to try to have is rooms that are bright, rooms that if, you, if it's possible to be near a window, natural light is always going to be the best. If it's not possible to be near a window, then we want to try to have as many cool lights in the room as bright as possible while the student is studying. This also helps when it comes to sleep time because that transition from very bright light to dark or dim light is sometimes a shock the body needs to start to wind down. So having studying near a window if possible during the day and then having bright cool white lights during the night is also really helpful um, for students' concentration. But with all of that and being conscious of time as well, with all of that, what if the student still feels tired? This is common. They can be in a bright room with upbeat music and only their pen and paper in front of them, and they could still feel tired or unfocused because so far we have only considered the external environment. We've looked at what is around us, what we can see, what we can touch, what we can hear, what we can maybe feel as well but we haven't looked at optimizing our internal environment. Now, our internal environment is our brain. Our brain is a critical part of this study process. It's a critical uh, part of the environment that we need to optimize. Now, on exam day, students do typically know to drink well, eat a good breakfast, sleep well the night before. But if you've deprived yourself of sleep and studied in a dehydrated state and skipped meals or eaten junk food the whole lead up, then your one night of good sleep and good drinking is not going to solve the problem. So how can we, I guess, promote a better internal environment? 
Now, I am removing all opinions and kind of views on what foods and what diets and what, what people should and shouldn't eat. I'm going to break it down purely to a biological perspective that the brain needs two key things to operate, and that is oxygen and glucose. So whether you are vegan, gluten-free, dairy-free, pescatarian, carnivorous, your brain needs glucose. And that can be achieved from most good food sources um, will have glucose in them. But if you can stay away from the more processed foods, um, that's usually a short-term glucose solution. More um, whole foods like breads and grains or vegetables will have a longer-lasting effect. So that's the extent of my nutritional advice for today. But the reason we need to talk about it is because glucose is necessary for brain function. Wherever the source is, that's up to you. And oxygen is necessary for brain function. Now, two of the main sources of, if I take a step back, the way that oxygen and glucose get around our brain is through a blood supply. So the more that the blood is flowing through our brain rich in oxygen and glucose, then the better it can function. So before we start putting this good stuff into us, we need to make sure that our blood flow is good and rich to the brain. And one of the best ways we can do that is hydration. The first symptom of hydration at about 20 to 30% dehydration sorry, the first symptom of dehydration at about 20 or 30% of dehydration is a lack of focus, a lack of focus. And some people, I've seen some papers that that say it's as low as eight to 10% of dehydration immediately leads to a lack of focus. Now, when you're studying and you're trying to learn, focus is your best friend. Focus is actually arguably the one thing that you do need at that time. So making sure you're hydrated both helps with the blood flow, but also helps with the oxygen. But we know that the other major source of oxygen is through good deep breaths. So what we want to be able to do is if we're reaching a point where we are tired or lethargic is actually just stop and take a few big breaths in. And that is a breath all the way to your belly. And if you want to make sure a student is is breathing properly, get them to put their hand on their belly and breathe all the way in until they feel their belly push out and then breathe out. Now, we know that breathing has multiple benefits on helping your mindfulness and helping you focus up. But even from a biological perspective, helping increase the oxygen to your brain is going to help you study. So breathing is a really effective way to help your internal environment. And finally, a good source of glucose. As I mentioned, I'm not not a nutritionist nor here to offer nutritional advice, but we know that glucose, um, one of the best sources of, of glucose and natural glucose is from your fruits and veggies. So having fruit and veggie snacks is always helpful. And in order to maximize all of this, we actually want to mimic our internal um, healthy habits with our external ones for the last big tip of the day, and that is practicing good posture. Now, I'm going to say for two reasons. 
obviously parents have a vested interest in their students' posture and in their children's posture and making sure they don't turn out hunchbacks and all of that fun stuff. But if they need other reasons, talk to them about the biological impact of bad posture. Talk to them about the fact that when they are hunching over, they're restricting those crucial blood vessels and nerves that actually lead to their brain that send them all the the good stuff like the glucose and the water and the focus and the energy and the neural pathways and everything. If you're driving on a straight road, you'll always get somewhere faster than if you're driving on a wavy one. And if you're making your blood vessels travel the long way through all your hunches and all your lumps and bumps, you're already impairing your your brain's ability to work efficiently. So making sure you're sitting with good posture, shoulders back. Um, One of the easiest ways to do this is to actually uh, prop the screen up with some textbooks or a box or something to help students sit up straight. But sitting up straight, step one. Something that you can do right now is get out of your uh, probably a state of of either anxiousness or too much focus. And I can bet your tongue is probably on the roof of your mouth. So release your tongue from the roof of your mouth. Unclench your jaw, which is a very likely state that you're in right now. Shoulders back and down, not just back. Otherwise, you end up with them right up at your neck, back and down. Chest forward, so pushing that chest forward, chin up, and your eyes ideally will be facing forward at the screen as opposed to looking down or looking up. Now, just by having this checklist, all of the students that I work with have this checklist on their desk laminated so that they can refer to it when they need it. This is your, okay, I can feel that I'm feeling stressed. I can feel that I'm feeling tired. I can feel that I'm not focusing. Here is my reset. Tongue from the roof of my mouth, unclench my jaw, shoulders back and down, chest forward, pump it out with a bit of pride, chin up and your eyes on the screen. And this physiological reset promotes blood flow to your brain, reduces the anxiousness in your brain as well and helps you get in a focused position. This one takes a little bit longer for students to get on board with, and that's okay. But once you get them to practice it a few times and they see the benefit, they will then do it themselves. So I would encourage having a list like this for students or adults. We do this same presentation in workplaces. So for students or adults who are feeling like they're at a point where they're not focusing and they're feeling a little bit or a little bit tense or a little bit stuck or even a little bit tired, these six steps will help you get back into a focus space. So we talked about what you can see, what you can hear, what you can touch, what you can feel around you um, with your physical environment, what you can do with your internal environment, and then how you can link the two by helping promote a better internal environment with how you're sitting and how you're interacting with your stuff, your desk. So a quick recap of that is the first thing is for your sense of sight, out of sight, out of mind. Regularly complete a study or workspace audit to check what you have and remove what is not serving you towards exam conditions. 
Find the right music for you. So choose a track that helps you focus. And that is dependent on what you need at that moment in time. Turn up the lights. So make sure your study space is well lit. Um, bright white lights and natural light are more ideal than warm lights, trying to mimic that high focus environment. And fuel your brain and sit up straight. Your external environment can do a lot of work for you but it won't work if your internal environment isn't doing just as much back. And if you can get these four steps right for your students and help them mimic exam conditions, you're going to help them study at home more effectively, but you're also going to help them perform better on test and exam day because their whole, physiologi their whole physiological and biological um, state is prepared for these exams not just remembering facts and figures. And I can probably say from, the, from all of my experience in the bottom of my heart that this is probably the single most effective strategy in helping students reduce their stress and increase their focus in tests and exams by repeated exposure to exam conditions and mimicking it at home so it's not a shock on test day. So this is quite a, an information-dense um, presentation, but it's also something that you can put in place right now. So if you weren't doing it while, we, while you were watching, watch it back, review it, share it with your students, and this is something you can do to their study environment today, tomorrow, and for the next few months to help optimise it. And that was it from me. So hopefully that covered most aspects of, of an effective study environment and, and I'm ready for questions with five minutes to go. Um, as always, Deanna, amazing. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. Now I do have some questions. So yeah. the first one is studying in bed. Yeah. Is that effective? Yeah, I was hoping this would come up as a question. So I wanted to answer it after the fact because if you use the logic of what we spoke about in terms of how important your physiological state is to your studying and processing information, if you are in bed, what do we typically associate that experience with? Right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm already sleeping. So. Yeah. We associate <laughs> yep. it with sleep or movies. So sleep or movies require a passive um, kind of energy level and it's a very different experience to what you want to be feeling when you're studying. Altern like, so what actually happens is when you're studying in bed, you're actually ruining both experiences of sleep and study because while you're studying, you're thinking about sleep and if you do it for long enough when you're trying to sleep, you're thinking about study because your body emotionally and, and physiologically links experiences to locations and senses. So by studying in your bed, you're more likely to not focus while you're studying and not sleep when it's bedtime. So we are a hard against studying in bed rule. The only real activity, cognitive activity in bed is maybe reading fiction books if you like that to kind of fall asleep, but I wouldn't be doing anything that actually requires your focus or or anything like that. Yeah. So it is possible then, you know, obviously students will be studying in their bedrooms. So just to create that, even though it is the same space, just creating that division between their creating workspace. And, yeah. yeah. And that audit 
by doing the what can I see audit, if your bed is on the list, then that might tell you that you need to reorient your desk. You need to change the direction of your desk. Maybe, I know it's not ideal, but perhaps have it facing a wall Then you can have some bright lights to make it a little bit more exciting, but um, you'd rather be looking at a wall than a desk, than a bed. That's really important. Um, that's what one of the purposes of the audit, because we understand that some students have to study in their bedroom due to space restrictions or multiple kids in the house or whatever it might be. But um, ensuring their bed is out of sight is, is part of that study audit. Terrific. Now I've got another one. <laughs> As it's getting colder, heating, sometimes our rooms might be too hot. Mm -hmm. uh, got some comments about temperature and, and airflow. Yes. So obviously airflow is critical because the, the less airflow you get, the less oxygen you're getting, the less of that flow to your brain. But even excessive warmth is associated with lethargy and feeling tired. So even though you might be very, very tempted to kind of rug up, a little trick you could use, and this actually, I use the hospital example in this context as well. Why are, you know, surgery rooms and hospitals often so cold? Aside from the disinfecting element, it actually keeps the doctors in a more alert state so they can, they can do their job. So a little hint of either just natural room temp or even slightly on the, on the colder side is actually better for studying then overly rugging up and entering a state of lethargy and, and warmth, even though it is very tempting at the moment. Yes, and especially tonight. <laughs> it's, especially, really quite, it's really especially quite cool. Tonight. It's really yeah. quite cool. Um, Deanna, thank you so much. As always, extremely practical, um, great tips. And uh, and I'm sure, you know, people who've been, who'll be watching this are going to be able to be experts in, in, guiding, their, in guiding their students at home. Um, as always, these are the sorts of skills that we want our parents to be able to, to pick up and run with. And you, you always deliver in such an amazing way. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. Now you can join the VPC as a full member and you'll have access to this event and all past VPC live events. Membership is for one year uh, and we have different types of membership categories, but there, was, there are members that receive a VIP code on reduction in cost when you sign up for some of these live events. So there's some real bonuses there and uh, different types of um, membership uh, rates, uh, but uh, it's definitely... Uh, definitely a value-packed membership so um, lots and lots of we've now got years of podcasts and uh, VPC live material there um, that is evergreen that you're able to access so once again join me in thanking Deanna um, Deanna will be back again we've got I think we've got another session coming up Deanna um, a bit later on uh, and uh, we look forward to seeing you then thanks everybody lovely having you with us tonight Thank you to our guest speaker. We hope you enjoyed today's topic. Want to know more about this podcast and other VPC podcasts? Please visit the VPC website, vicparentscouncil.vic.edu.au and leave a review. We would also welcome you to contact us if you would like to be our guest or if you have a topic around parenting and education. Thank you to Melbourne singer Emma Sydney for her permission to use her soundtrack, Cherish. Until next time, thank you for listening.